Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is an RNZ podcast. They say it takes a village to raise a child. I'm Catherine Ryan, and here we draw on my conversations with experts on Nine to Noon to help you navigate family life. At what age should someone be considered adolescent? Our guest is Susan Sawyer, a professor of adolescent health at the University of Melbourne and a practising paediatrician. She's also been consultant to the WHO, UNICEF, UNFPA and the World Bank. Throughout the world, youth and health agencies differ on the age group that qualifies as adolescent, sometimes quite markedly. Professor Sawyer co-led two recent series on adolescent health for The Lancet and is a commissioner on The Lancet's Commission on Adolescent Health and Wellbeing. She says there are strong arguments for adolescence to extend to the age of 24. To explore this and the implications for the likes of policymakers and health services, Susan Sawyer is with us from Melbourne. Susan, good morning. Good morning to you. So if we put the age to one side, what is adolescence? Adolescence is that period between childhood and adulthood. It is that stage where young people um, have reached reproductive capacity, um, but it is the recognition that young people are not yet fully adult. So we think of it as this transitional phase. But the definition of that has really changed dramatically over time. And the way we can think about this period depends on whether we might be bringing a biological lens to it and focusing on puberty, which has been historically the start of adolescence, or whether we might bring a sociological lens on it and look at it in a different way and we can appreciate that the end of adolescence has historically been denoted by those social role transitions towards completion of education, financial independence, uh, marriage and parenting, that as we can appreciate whether in terms of downward trends in puberty or upward trends in the timing of those social role transitions, what is clear is that adolescence now uh, constitutes a much larger period of the life course than it did, say, 100 years ago. Well, it starts earlier. If you're looking at the biological and you're looking at puberty, you're seeing in girls menstruation beginning as young as, as eight or nine in some cases, and I think the average has come back something like a couple of years. So there's the biological development. You talked about role transition, which is the social development, but is a lot of what we're talking about also brain development and brain maturity? And is that why you are looking at 24? Look, we're looking at it from both the biology and the social. You're absolutely right about the significance of brain maturation. And, you know, in some ways it's almost laughable our previous ways of thinking the the brain was at its full adult volume at the age of eight years. And somehow, despite everything we know about the importance of um, learning in adolescence and young adulthood, we sort of failed, I think, bit largely because of the lack of um, uh, experimental evidence. We really failed to have much understanding at all 
of what we now know is this incredibly rich period of human development in the brain, a tremendous refinement of the neurological connections in the brain, which allow young people at the end of their 20s to be thinking very differently than at the start of adolescence. And the evidence that we now have is that brains are continuing to have, if you like, their develop their final adult form at least into the mid-20s. And with what implications, when we are thinking about policy, what, what implications for the individual, by the way? Questions such as risk-taking. We know that is a, uh, particularly in, in, in males, but that is a real, in, in both sexes, a real feature of, of, of adolescence and young adulthood. Um, judgment, um, ability to regulate emotions, uh, and, and ability to look beyond oneself and take responsibility for others. They're, they're just four things I would pluck at. But all of them clearly have implications for what we ask and expect of and, and how we support people at this stage of life. How, how do you take the physical, emotional stage of development and put it into behaviours that we need to be aware of? Look, I think you're absolutely spot on in appreciating the complexity of what is happening during these years. And I think one of the the points that increasingly those of us who work in the field of adolescent health are recognising is that as adolescence is this transitional phase of developing capabilities, that we have to think very carefully about the sort of programs that we want to put in place to be supporting those developing capabilities, whilst also recognising that we are needing to equally put in place a set of protective policies around young people. And I think legal frameworks are a really valuable um, example of this. We have typically thought that, you know, on your 18th birthday, um, you uh, can get your driver's licence, you can buy alcohol, you get a licence to, in effect, be an adult. And certainly many of my patients believe that this is the case, completely failing to recognise that actually a whole lot of adult rights happen well earlier than 18 in terms of young people, for example, being able to access some health services independently and confidentially of their parents well before the age of 18, as the case in both Australia and New Zealand. Young people are able to have sex well before the age of 18, perfectly legally. And there are other um, aspects that we don't think uh, even the age of 18 is um, fully uh, appropriate. So, for example, in Australia, we have graduated driver's licences so that even in Victoria, where I'm based, you can obtain your driver's licence at the age of 18. It's not a full adult driver's licence. And for the next three years, you have a probationary or graduated licence by which over time you are able to be uh, um, take on more of uh, what is appropriate in terms of uh, driving um, with some alcohol in the blood, unlike absolutely zero tolerance for alcohol as P-plate drivers have. But I think in the same way, um, if we think, for example, about the age of legal responsibility is one thing that this different way of thinking about adolescence would force us to think differently about as well. Or I'd use the age of voting, for example, where in Australia currently with our uh, federal election coming up in about two and a half weeks, 18-year-olds um, are able to vote. But 
in countries like Scotland and also in Wales, they have recently reduced the voting age down to 16 because voting is a safe activity. It's an important activity to learn about in terms of promoting civic engagement and participation within one's community. Uh, And it would seem entirely appropriate to be reducing that age. Whereas for other more protective elements of young people, um, we could view the age being higher. And I would give the example of New Zealand's uh, protective laws around children in out-of-home care that historically, on their 18th birthday, having been cared for by the um, but New Zealand government uh, were then basically had a handshake and told, you know, on, on your own, on your bike. Whereas recognising that these are among some of the most vulnerable young people in our communities, I'm very impressed that in 2016 the New Zealand government acknowledged the vulnerability and on an elective basis, only if those young people chose to do so, they could have access to uh, local government housing grants and also access to continued social work career guidance support up until their 25th birthday. So it's being phased in, I think, and and it's and it's important that you make that interesting um, um, point out the difference between voting. Where I mean, we're not talking that people are incompetent because they're adolescents. We're talking no. about them having varying um, levels of um, maturity of certain stages of development. So voting, I mean, I'm so admiring of these kids who are out doing the climate protests. A lot of people who are in charge of policy on these matters are going to be dead, frankly, long Mm. before Mm. the very most severe impacts of of the climate track we're on hit. 16-year-olds aren't, and they're right for their issues and concerns to be heard and considered and to carry, Mm. more importantly, to carry some political power is completely arguable, or justifiably arguable. But to your point, that doesn't mean that someone who has been in state care from a young age and has dealt with all the challenges of of, um, their very important developmental years is ready at the age of 18 to pop out there and look after themselves. So that differentiation between what what you are saying is the case of de- in development and what it means for policy seems to me to be quite significant. Another one might be the prison system, where we've only just moved 17-year-olds, mm. we've moved the age to 18 before they enter the adult prison system. And I'm really interested in whether this is an area that you believe a lot of focus needs to go on, how we deal with adult prisoners who are in fact well under 24 Mm. and whether just putting them in with people who are well over 24 is the way to go. Well, I would certainly agree with you that this is a really important example. I'd make the first point, though, that in terms of the risks that come from incarcerating young people who have admittedly um, uh, uh, had uh, significant offences that have been made in terms of them even being considered for prison. But I think in the very first instance, given the risks of associating with older, hardened criminals and the risk to their physical well-being in jail, let alone anything else, that diversionary uh, practices 
numbers are certainly what we need to be thinking about. And there is every evidence that for a very significant proportion of young people who have been in trouble with the law, that diversion can be just as effective, indeed, if not more effective um, than incarceration. And particularly when we think of the vulnerabilities that in our case, Indigenous Australians, but similarly, I know that for Maori and Pacific Islander communities who are, in the case of Australian Indigenous young people, over 20 times more likely to be incarcerated than non-Indigenous Australians. These rates are really shameful and require us to think very significantly. In Australia, and it is different in different states, but that notion of a, a youth justice track rather than an adult prison track is um, uh, available uh, at the discretion of uh, the presiding judge under the age of 21 uh, rather than under the age of 18, as you're describing in New Zealand. And I think that is a very valuable option to have where young people can be incarcerated in a youth detention rather than in an adult jail where the focus, one would hope, is one much more on rehabilitation than simply in terms of punishment. But again, I would be arguing that nowhere in the world, I I believe, are we investing sufficiently in these highly vulnerable populations of young people where too often we are purely bringing a punitive approach rather than a rehabilitative approach. What of the complicated area of seeing doctors by yourself when you're young and the confidentiality rules that surround that, whether it's for sexual health or mental health? Because here you are on the one hand saying actually we need to understand that the adolescent brain is with us much longer in life and it probably varies person to person according to many factors but but really with us much later in life than we've presumed and yet on the other side there are competing factors over interactions with the health services where you can see an argument for confidentiality perhaps simply because someone will engage or because Mm. of Mm. their... um, because they're at risk at home. How do you come at that question of of, of how things should be organised and and what should be a block, what what should the obligations should be on the medical profession? Mm. I, I think this is a, a really important area that certainly around the world um, there has been far uh, inadequate attention given to this issue of young people's engagement in the health services where they're typically either treated as children or um, and being fully dependent on their parents to be making decisions for them or treated as fully independent adults over the age of 18 when their parents are not engaged, not expected to be engaged at all. I would take a step back from the problems that young people might be coming to health services with to simply start at the start of adolescence, you know, maybe if we're talking about 10, 11, 12-year-olds, recognising that parents and the healthcare system between them have the requirement over that decade, basically, to be equipping young adolescents with the understanding, if you like, the health literacy, the knowledge of the healthcare system, the knowledge of the language of health, of how to access health services, how to talk about health and wellbeing. That's an acquisition that is the responsibility of parents 
and the responsibility of the healthcare system. So I think at its simplest, the value of young people spending some time confidentially with health professionals in the absence of their parents who are waiting outside in the waiting room in the best case scenarios is in order simply to be promoting that acquisition of health literacy. Because if young people are sitting in the um, consultation with a parent there, then I can tell you absolutely two things will happen. Uh, the parent knows that it's far, they can give a far faster, quicker and probably better history to the health professional than the young person can. Um, and the young person is generally very happy for mum and dad to speak on their behalf because it's actually quite hard to speak medical language and communicate quite with health professionals. We, quite often we do hear, and this is an issue though, that, that the young person will be getting, um, as I said, either sexual health or mental health services without the parents being advised at all under privacy legislation. Is that the case in Australia? Yes, that's also the case in Australia. And I think that this is where, if we take a step back from the importance of those consultations as learning opportunities for young people, the second reason for young people to consult with health professionals by themselves is obviously because there are a whole range of health issues that they experience that if their parents were in the room with them, they would not generally be choosing to share what might be going on and are therefore not able to access the quality health care they need. Now, mm. suicide, I would argue, would be um, you know, the prime case where you might be having a young person who is actively suicidal, who for a range of reasons um, is not wanting to share that information. And it may be the only opportunity you have to get that information confidentially. Rick, but Rick. having got that information confidentially, if the young person who is at significant risk to their life is saying they don't want that information shared with their parent. It's a very good example where the law actually requires us to keep that young person safe. What of recreational drug use? This is getting interesting here as our law is changing. Um, just even today we were discussing, certainly the emphasis is changing away from prosecution to um, a so-called health-based approach. And I say so-called because there's large questions over whether the relevant services are widely enough available. But also the idea if you're going to decriminalise uh, cannabis use, say, um, that the age limit might be 18, or if you're going to legalise it might be 18. Is this a warning that the adolescent brain, the physical, biological brain development, you might want to revisit again where that age limit is set? Certainly there are um, tremendous concerns about uh, heavy rates of cannabis use in young people, by which I mean in terms of frequency. Uh, the evidence tells us that young people, particularly the evidence is around young women who are using cannabis uh, at least weekly, um, are much more likely, as shown in longitudinal studies, to then be at subsequent risk of depression and anxiety. It's not that they are self-medicating for depression and anxiety, although we know that that also happens, but that the reverse uh, relationship is the case, that cannabis of itself leads to greater mental health risks. No doubt you're also aware of the risks for psychosis that have been associated with significant cannabis use as well. So I think that there are concerns um, about viewing, um, if you like, substance use that may be appropriate, and I am with you on the may be appropriate for adults, uh, and thinking about what that means in terms of easier access 
advice for adolescents as well. What of mental health? We are associating this period of life also with this current generation or couple of generations with what is perceived to be very high levels of anxiety or or extreme anxiety experiences relative to earlier generations. It's always a time where a good deal of angst can be associated to life, but it seems to be more serious and more prevalent. Has your work suggested that, again, we shouldn't be presuming this is going to pass at the age of 21 or 22? I'm curious, actually, as to whether there is evidence that it does begin to recede a little uh, in adulthood, or, or might we be, or, or does it typically continue as an issue in adulthood? The evidence is very clear that puberty marks a very significant signal in relationship to an uptick in the prevalence or sorry, the incidence of mental disorder, particularly in relation to depression um, and particularly in girls. So that the timing of onset of puberty is likely to be one contributor to why we have seen uh, a lowering of the age in terms of the prevalence of um, common mental disorder in adolescence. But what is also clear, and this has been uh, clear um, for quite some time, it's not new evidence, is that whilst we see an increase in the prevalence of common mental disorders such as depression and anxiety over the teenage years, that rate increases even more so into the young adult years. And so certainly when we think about uh, the age criteria for child and adolescent mental health services, for example, we certainly need to be taking into account um, the age of onset of mental disorder and thinking about those transitions between services types. So that in Australia, for example, it's very pleasing that there is an increasing trend towards our child and adolescent mental health services extending up to the age of 24, rather than a previous cut point at 18, where children were then expected to head into adult mental health services. Just briefly, given it's a parenting um, segment, all this information is fascinating, but is it something that people need to bear in mind in parenting styles? I know we often joke that people seem to be adolescent until they're 35 these days, <laughs> partly to do with housing crises sometimes, I think, um, and you know, people um, facing the reality that, that they may be longer until they can financially be entirely independent. But is it something also to remember in parenting that just because someone's turned 18 or 19, they don't suddenly flick the adult switch and that while you will be undoubtedly adapting the way you relate with your uh, child around this time, the maturity, the emotional maturity may vary more than we expected as well. I think there are sins of omission and sins of commission. I think that in terms of parenting, um, I'd go back to your opening example of climate change and the wonderful uh, engagement that we are seeing from a new generation of young people who are claiming their future world and insisting that we panic more than we do, using Greta Thunberg's language. This, to me, highlights that young people, you know, parents need to be reminded that young people learn by doing, young people learn by engaging, young people gain social skills and emotional sensitivity and empathy by being part of the wider world. 
world. So that notion of helicopter parenting and the desire to overly protect uh, younger adolescents from harm is something that we need to urge parents to remember that we learn by making mistakes, we learn by doing, and that for parents to be encouraged to step back to enable their adolescent kids to step up is an important aspect of those um, teenage years. And then as you're rightly um, signifying, for young adults, you know, that nothing magical happens on your 18th birthday. Um, The brain doesn't click in in any way differently for 18 and one day versus 17 and 364 days. Nothing changes. The brain is still maturing across into into the 20s. And young people are still very much benefiting from parental wisdom, what is hopefully parental wisdom, on their terms, not in their face, um, but in ways that are can really be helpful in terms of framing uh, young people's emotional regulation, their responses to the wider world. So yes, I think parents are still incredibly important for young adults, and not just in terms of the um, the assistance with uh, with with housing, laundry, and uh, and uh, food. Thank you. It's Professor Susan Sawyer. And of course you can access this and all our parenting podcasts by going to RNZ series and podcast page. It's called It Takes a Village. You can subscribe to it and have it drop into your feed every week. You'll find other fascinating podcasts on that page as well. Plenty of them, including a second parenting one, Are We There Yet? Katie Gossett's uh, parenting podcast available there too. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.